<clears throat> this podcast is brought to you by the Almamac and Scientific Canada. It was recorded on the traditional territories shared between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations. Enjoy. I feel like I just butchered that again, even though we <laughs> we just had the conversation. Okay. My research on <laughs> uh, light adaptation in the in the fish right now. I'm sitting in a kiddie pool, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite nice. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> but it's oh, uh, not very professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Almamac. I'm Adam, and I'm your producer this week. This week's episode is a very special one. For one thing, it's the triumphant return of Severa OS. For another, she speaks to a guest who studies some very important and very timely issues. I'd probably even label them as crises, really. Rita is a master's student at McMaster University. This week, Severa talks to her about her research, which includes assessing policy decisions from a human rights perspective. For example, stay-at-home restrictions and the homeless and unemployed, or how child welfare is affected by institutional racism. As I was editing this episode, Rita and Severa touched on a few things that I wasn't aware of. In particular, there's a glaring statistic that the homeless in Ontario are five times more likely to die from COVID-19-related complications than non-homeless. From the CBC article by Kate McGilvery, posted on January 12th, a few days before this recording, following nearly 30,000 people with a recent history of homelessness over six-month period, the researchers found that they were more likely to become infected with the novel coronavirus, be hospitalized, experience complications, and die. Quote, individuals recently homeless were over 20 times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19 over 10 times more likely to receive intensive care, and they were over five times more likely to die within 21 days of a positive test, said principal author Lucy Richard in an interview with the CBC Toronto. The study was conducted by the Lawson Research Institute and the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, where Richard is a research analyst. So we knew the homeless population was one of the most at-risk populations, but I wasn't aware how much worse things were for them. I wasn't particularly surprised to see that the infection rates were higher, but the difference in mortality rates was frankly shocking. This begs the question, with new lockdown restrictions in Ontario, what are we doing to help this population? Quebec and Ontario in particular have adopted these curfews coupled with hefty fines to help slow the spread among citizens, but this only really makes sense when you have a home to go to and stay in. Quebec seems to have taken a pretty horrible stance on this, issuing fines to homeless people for ignoring the curfew. From an article by Jacob Cerebrin in The National Observer, we can't force people to go stay in a shelter, Laurie Backrow said, who is a community organizer um, looking to, to end this sort of issue. We're talking about people, not objects, that we can move from one place to another. Finding homeless people, she said, won't help anyone. The article goes on to say, Montreal Police Spokeswoman Constable Annabelle Prato said police officers have been asked to use their judgment when dealing with homeless people who are outdoors after 8 p.m., which is the curfew time. In an email Wednesday, she said police are looking at the context for each situation and, when possible, helping homeless people access available resources. Obviously, this is not a solution, and advocacy groups are actively looking for ways to protect these people. So what about Ontario? We lagged behind on the curfew a little bit, um, but have recently taken up something similar to what Quebec has. However, 
the Ford government added the clause, this order does not apply to individuals who are homeless. Again, obviously, this isn't going to fix the huge differences and outcomes experienced by the homeless in our communities. Honestly, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, at, at least we're not finding them. Uh, this is, but this is totally out of my wheelhouse. But I will share in the show notes uh, for some of our Hamilton listeners uh, some initiatives that you can maybe help out with. But for our guest today, Rita, this is exactly her wheelhouse. And for more on these issues and what it looks like to study them at a graduate level, stay tuned for a Severe's interview with McMaster grad student Rita. But hey, while I have you here, have you checked out our website yet? It's at scientificcanada.ca. There you can find older episodes, videos of our interviews, and articles written by some of our contributors and guests. Some of them are actually humorous, too. For example, check out the article, Twitch Streamer Awarded Full Professorship Starts Teaching Physics. For something less humorous, you can check out Polarization, What Does It Mean for Science Communication and Decision Making, written by Sarah Turner. And if you like what you hear, we would really appreciate it if you'd recommend us to a friend. Send them to scientificcanada.ca and say, hey friend, check out this really great website. Now, on to the interview. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning back to the Almanac here on 93.3 CFMU YouTube or wherever you're listening from. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Severa Wes, and it has been a while since I have been here. You may have listened on a previous episode with Adam um, where I was on the other side of the mic for the very first time and we were just talking about the trajectory of the Almamac and how I am back hosting. So I'm very excited to be back and we have a great lineup of guests and interviews and Adam who's preparing his little science media empire has some great articles there as well. So make sure you um, check that out. But for today, I want to welcome a first year master's student, Rida Mosin, who is in the political sciences department. How are you doing today, Rida? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Um, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about uh, your work and your research. And why don't we just jump right into it? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get started. Yeah. So Ritha, I was I was really intrigued reading um, a little bit about the work that you have done. Um, I know you are multifaceted, so you have your hands <laughs> in a lot of different places. But I think the first thing that I, I wanted to learn a little bit more about is, um, and it's actually quite topical, we were talking about this before, the, the work that you're doing, you're looking at how to take a human rights framework or approach when it comes to these COVID-19 response policies. Yeah, so if you, can, if you can explain a little bit further, what does it mean to take a human rights approach? What does that entail in, in the context of the current COVID-19 responses? Um, so essentially, I just want to start off by saying my research is very early in its stages, so um, not an expert just yet, but I'm going to tell you, I'm trying to cover the basics. But um, so basically, in terms of kind of health policy, uh, when you take a human rights framework, you want to approach it by centering human rights in kind of um, the way that you um, create your policy. 
um, so you want to ensure that people's inalienable rights are being accounted for and you aren't um, kind of foregoing them in order to justify whatever policy you're creating. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of examples of governments using health policy or not uh, framing policy at all in a way to harm vulnerable communities. Um, we've seen protests with Black Lives Matter, um, people that are incarcerated, um, um, undocumented immigrants. Um, so all these communities are already vulnerable, are being pushed uh, further into the margins because of um, badly constructed policy or the lack of policy in general. Right. And when I was reading a little bit more about this, I think they were saying that you need to make sure that the public health measures are necessary and adequate, but they don't go beyond what is necessary. Mm -hmm. And just how you were mentioning how there are some populations at a disadvantage. So you mentioned migrants and refugees, um, individuals who may be housing insecure. Are they mm -hmm. being left out of these policies or are these policies just not um, targeting the groups that really should be supported the most at this time? Um, I think the main concern is that they're being ignored. Um, and so when you construct policies without having these people in these communities in mind, um, oftentimes you are maybe without intention criminalizing them or putting them at a place that further disadvantages them. Um, take, for example, the new restrictions that have been placed in this current state of emergency. Uh, we can be fined or, you know, you're targeted by the police. Um, what are you supposed to do if you're homeless or um, you don't, you know, kind of have kind of stable housing? Um, you're just going to be more further, more in contact with the police. And it just kind of further criminalizes this huge sector of the population. Well, not huge, but large sector of the population, especially now because of growing rates of unemployment, kind of looking at how um, the pandemic has kind of turned the economy upside down. You kind of have lots of more people being pushed into the vulnerable side of things. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, too, that we see so many um, types of evidence and reports coming out saying that communities at a disadvantage are being disproportionately affected the most, yet perhaps, like, again, nothing is being not as much as being as done about it as could be. So I know, um, I'm not sure if you read it, but a recent article um, came out saying that individuals who are experiencing homelessness are five times more likely to die within 21 days of being infected um, with COVID-19 as compared to those who have stable housing. I think they mm -hmm. looked at over 30,000 um, individuals. So, I mean, mm -hmm. we're seeing this evidence, but still, would you say that still these COVID-19 response policies are still not taking a human rights approach? What needs to be done? Um, yeah, they're, they're really not. I think it kind of speaks to government ineptitude. Um, at the moment, you see a lot of people, not even if you're um, kind of, uh, you take in politics a lot, if you're really focused on it, just like casually paying attention, it's, it's explicitly clear that people just don't really know what they're doing. Um, and so when you are ignoring these communities, it's bound to harm people that you aren't taking account of. Um, and yeah, the study you mentioned is like extremely depressing, but I think when you apply a human rights approach, you want to kind of make sure you are taking these communities into consideration um, and you want to make sure that you're not constricting individual rights. Um, you want to take in the kind of underlying detriments um, such as social security, food, water, housing, and education, and you want to factor those into your like health system responses. So keeping that in mind would account for these communities. It wouldn't kind of push them further into the margins. Mm -hmm. 
And just your point on constricting human rights. So again, when I was reading around um, this topic, it's something that I, I hadn't even considered. But for instance, countries that may be, um, or I guess you can see provinces, but countries that may be mm-hmm. imposing things such as curfews or mm-hmm. um, fines, or I think in some countries, maybe you face uh, prison time for defined public health measures. I guess mm-hmm. to, to, to what extent um, does that infringe on our inalienable human rights? And do you think those types of um, restrictions are effective? Um, so in those kind of restrictions, there's obviously uh, human rights um, frameworks that take account for restrictions that would limit certain rights. But I mean, those are expected with government responses, but it depends which rights those are. Um, if you're just using it to kind of target a community and you're further criminalizing them, it mm. doesn't really, I mean, they can kind of justify it in their own way, but these kind of things are pretty explicit, like you've seen in the Philippines, um, you see in Palestine, Israel, the way their medical apartheid is going on at the moment. Um, and so when you are creating these health policies because you aren't framing them through the human rights perspective and you're just kind of trying to constrict civil liberties, um, it doesn't really um, achieve what you're trying to do. You, it, people think that, oh, this is like tough love. This is uh, me just trying to do this for the greater good. But if you're ha- further harming these people, then it doesn't really help them. It just kind of, um, it, it ends up targeting people that are considered, um, they don't contribute in the same way that um, other people do. Um, and that goes into kind of biases that exist within the government and not just um, kind of uh, health policy in general. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, when you say something like that, I think the first thing that comes to mind is how we've responded to the crisis, crises rather that's been occurring in our long-term care homes. I mean, mm-hmm. we saw it in the first wave and unfortunately nothing's really changed um, since then. Um, and I think some of the um, sentiments that people um, you know, uh, imply or that, oh, these are older adults, they're at the end of mm-hmm. life, you know, how much are they mm-hmm. going to contribute to society, which is just so many different um, mm-hmm. facets of ageism. But yeah, that's, that's, you hear that um, from people in general, too, you hear like, uh, I've heard people that I went to school with saying, you know, it's okay, if I go out and party, it's okay, if I, you know, don't really isolate, I don't follow the, the restrictions and things, because I'm young, uh, even if I do get it, I'll be fine. Um, but I think it speaks to a lot of people's selfishness that you are okay with kind of spreading it in that way because you don't account for the people that are vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Great point. And Rita, you've also done some work and research around the intersection of child welfare and the systemic racism that may exist within it. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I did this huge kind of policy project in um, Dr. Mardu's class. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's an amazing professor. Um, and so I decided to look at the um, kind of overrepresentation of Indigenous and Black children in the child welfare system. Um, so Children's Aid Societies, or CAS, as they're kind of uh, known as, um, they derive power from the provincial government, and they essentially, you know, um, have the power to remove children from their family, put them in the welfare system and kind of decide what the best course of action is for them and their families. Um, and so we're seeing kind of um, legacies of colonialism, we're seeing legacies of residential schools kind of being played out in the current system. And so you're removing these children from their families, 
um, because of either biases that exist in the community, people that are doing the reporting, or biases that exist within um, the social workers that work for CAS. Um, and so what happens is they're um, overreported and they're um, taken away from their families more often than um, white children, white families are less kind of um, looked at in that way. And so it speaks more to those biases that still exist within our society and that, um, you know, that continuation of um, that cultural genocide that Indigenous people had to go through. Um, and it also plays up uh, kind of racial biases um, in the Black community when you don't really understand. Obviously, we have a huge immigration population here. And so if you don't understand other people's culture, you may view it as backwards or abusive. And so a lot of... Um, Black immigrants, uh, especially from the Caribbean and the area around there, are being targeted and they're severely overrepresented, over especially um, in cities. In Ontario, especially, it's, it's starting to be a problem and the rates just keep getting higher and higher and there isn't being anything really being done just as yet to address it. Yeah, um, I think, as, as you mentioned, like, I think these things really have to be placed in the historical and current context. So the mm -hmm. ongoing colonial trauma that Indigenous peoples are facing, um, uh, I've, I've also read that they are significantly overrepresented in the welfare system. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. Black individuals as well. Um, and I, I want to touch on a point that you mentioned earlier, saying that it could, it could be due to biases in reporting. So mm -hmm. do you think that maybe... Um, I'm not sure like what are the criteria needed um, for a child to be taken out of their home, but do you think some of the risk assessment tools are somehow biased? You mentioned that if you're not understanding the person's culture or how they mm -hmm. parent and their traditional parenting practices, and you only have like one perspective or worldview of looking at it, obviously um, certain cultures are going to be left out and overrepresented. So is where do you say the problem stems from? I know you discussed um, a few points, but where, yeah, where would you say the problem stems from? I think it comes mostly from the fact that um, it's up to these people's discretion. So it's up to them to decide, you know, what is okay and what is not okay. And so obviously when it's up to you and it's at the individual level, your own biases unconsciously will play into it. Um, <clears throat> sorry. And there also isn't um, a kind of system set up that evaluates these on a broader scale and takes these kind of considerations into account. Um, and so another factor also is that a majority of caste workers are white um, and they always have been and they continue to be kind of predominantly white. And so if you don't have community members, if you don't have people, a part of the culture involved in these discussions, involved in, you know, taking all these factors into consideration, you're going to have people that, you know, just don't understand. And when you don't understand, you kind of, fall into whatever stereotypical tropes you might already consider because of, you know, whatever biases you hold. And so when you don't have that cultural understanding, you don't have that community-based uh, knowledge, it kind of gets in the way and you don't have a clear picture of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking a bit about cultural understanding, and I know there's been an increasing awareness of doing cultural safety or um, mm -hmm. cultural competency uh, training to at least reduce the biases that we may have. So would you say that is a step that we need to take to ensure that we don't keep on perpetuating these um, systemic racist policies that may exist within the welfare system? Like is, is training needed or do we need to completely, do we need to ensure that the CAS workers are of the same um, 
culture and they uh, understand the parenting practices, what would you say it might be needed to ensure that um, children remain in homes as long as they're safe? I think um, CAS really needs to redirect its focus. Um, I think it doesn't take account for the community that it polices. So having that kind of involvement is crucial. You have a lot of, you know, Black activists and Black lawyers that have actually come out more recently and said that, you know, this is a problem. We need mm-hmm. to address it. So incorporating their voices is extremely important when you are looking at establishing criteria. Um, but I also think that um, these kind of education, cultural education doesn't really um, give you a full picture of what you need to know when you're on the job and when you're actually face-to-face with these people and you're kind of faced with that culture instead of just learning about and reading about it Um, because these are real people these are real families and there's a difference between you know learning about it and actually witnessing it for yourself Um, so kind of uh, having a diverse group of social workers involved in the process and having more checks and balances so that it's not so much uh, so much of the responsibility isn't on the individual social worker and their discretion Um, having few uh, institutional checks on them as well to make sure that the process is um, legitimate and that the concerns are legitimate. Mm -hmm. And I really like the point that you highlighted that these educational trainings, while they may be well-intentioned, like they're they're not going to solve the the biases that may exist within Mm -hmm. individuals, workplaces at an institutional level, and nothing can really replace um, lived experience. Yeah. Also, it's, it's, you know, you could have the training and then just not take any of it in, you know. So there's no way to kind of erase those kind of biases through a few sessions of cultural learning. You know, it, it, it takes more than that. It takes accountability. It takes um, checks and balances. It takes a lot more to kind of uh, take it all in. And those changes, those, those changes that are required at a, a systemic level, they take time and they take effort. Um, but I feel like sometimes if you really want change to happen, it, I mean, it needs to come from all levels, but I think the systems level particularly needs to be involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this isn't just a kind of a focused issue here in Ontario and the CAP system. It's a representative of larger systemic issues throughout government responses. Um, but I think that sorry, the caste system is illustrative of the kind of gap that's present in the way people approach Indigenous peoples and Black families and racialized communities because um, when you are largely being policed by white uh, people who don't have that same understanding, it's bound to kind of disadvantage you and your entire community. So thanks for sharing all that, uh, all of that with us, Ritha. Um It's really easy to see how passionate you are about these topics. Um, I am curious, how did you light this fire under you when it comes to political science, um, or when it comes to investigating the racism that may exist within the child welfare system, and of course, the very timely topic of the COVID-19 response policies? So uh, initially, I um, started out uh, my undergrad in criminology, and I wanted to go down kind of sociology and that kind of route. But then um, when Trump came on the scene, it kind of uh, introduced me to Fox in that way, and it became this huge sort of spectacle. Um, So I kind of have to thank him for bringing me into this whole side of um, university and this whole kind of um, department. Um, And so 
my research started to kind of veer into American politics. And then I started looking at uh, Canadian politics and foreign policy. And I think a lot of it became very personal because of my identity and because of um, the things that I've seen in my own community. And so um, I think it just kind of appealed to me in that sense. And now doing my master's kind of uh, showcased the practical side of things because before then I was mostly looking at theory. And so now seeing how you can um, materially change people's circumstances after learning about it for so long um, is something that really appealed to me. And it's, it's why like um, policy work is probably most interesting to me because I feel like I can actually do something about the things that are going on. Um, so yeah, that's why I feel like um, my interests have really bloomed here at Mac because um, a lot of the courses they're taking are a bit more hands-on. They do focus on practical approaches to all these issues. Yeah, it must be really uh, rewarding to see um, your research being put into practice um, and seeing the, the effects of it directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit limiting, but especially now because COVID can't really do field research. Um, but I think in general, just having this experience was really fulfilling. And you are also a faculty representative of the Graduate Student Association for Social Sciences, I believe. Yeah, I am. Me, uh, as well as uh, my co-rep, uh, Sarah, she's a PhD candidate in the anthropology department. Um, we, we mostly just joined to kind of be involved in, in the McMaster in community, especially for me, because it's my first year here. I've never been to campus, and uh, so it was important for me to kind of get involved in whichever way I could. Um, speaking of, um, I'd like to plug an event that we're having on the 28th of January. It's a grad meet and greet. Uh, it's a Zoom event for people in the grad students in the Faculty of Social Sciences, just so that we can meet each other um, and kind of reestablish that sense of community, uh, especially for students like me who are here for the first time and haven't really had that side of um, graduate school. So it'd be nice to meet each other. Also, I think it's uh, a good opportunity for senior students to kind of take a mentorship role and speak to newcomers and maybe give whatever advice or tips that they have for getting through graduate school. Yeah, oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah, it's networking has kind of taken a whole new approach um, ever since the pandemic. But that's wonderful to hear that the GSA and the Faculty of Social Sciences is holding something like that for their students. January 28th. Yeah, please come if you are in the Faculty of Social Sciences. We'd love to meet you. Great. And we can definitely put all the links to any of that information in the show notes. Um, and and so when you're, you're balancing all this... Um, with your, with your research and your coursework and being a GSA representative. And this doesn't apply now, but in the before times, you really enjoy traveling. Mm-hmm. I did. I actually, um, I, did, I didn't travel at all before, but then I did an exchange in Paris as part of my undergrad. And because Europe is like so cheap to travel across, I really went hardcore. And so now I'm like desperately waiting for restrictions to end and for all this to kind of be over so that I can get back to it. And what was your favorite place, if you have a favorite one, that you visited in Europe? Oh, I have to say Ibiza. I think I had the most fun there. I was like the laziest there. I just <laughs> chilled at the beach and it's just incredibly beautiful. Um, and I was there with my friends. So it was like the best time. Nice. 
Well, we hopefully, uh, we're all optimistic and hopeful that we have uh, travel to look forward to. Maybe not in the near future, mm-hmm. but we're getting there. Hopefully, we're getting there. If we can all get this vaccine soon. <laughs> getting there. Well, Ruta, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was so wonderful to hear about your really important research. Um, and I look forward to reading more from you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Okay, thanks so much. And thank you to all of you who tuned in to the Alamac on 93.3 CFMU or wherever you're listening to this on YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back next week. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Take care. like like I mentioned the human rights framework and then I read into mm-hmm. it and it was like things I didn't even consider like oh curfews and surveillance mm-hmm. and I'm like oh okay mm-hmm. wow like, I anyway so that was kind of cool yeah. I learned a lot yeah thank you I'm glad <laughs> I okay. introduced you to something new yeah <laughs>